Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where, Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I had a professor in Bible college, his name is George Klein, and he always had something profound to say. So I was thrilled to take his class on Psalms. And as he carefully worked through each Psalm, I looked forward with building excitement because we were getting closer and closer to my favorite poems in the Bible. I think the whole class was buzzing when we finally reached Psalm 139. I mean, this is a passage I'd heard since childhood. You have searched me and known me. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, there your hand shall lead me. What a beautiful and powerful expression of hope and faith. Right? I'll never forget when Dr. Klein stood up in front of his class um, in this tattered beige suit that had seen more decades than I have, and he opened to this passage, and then he read it with the gravity appropriate to a horror movie. And then he looked up from the passage and he said that we often think of this passage as an expression of hope uttered by the righteous, the faithful, and the blessed by God. But what if you read this passage as an Israelite who had abandoned the covenant or as a sinner who had earned the wrath of God? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the darkness is not dark to you. You hem me in behind and before you. Lay your hand upon me. What if you read those promises as a sinner who had earned God's wrath? Now that is a profound idea. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day I don't think it really changes the way I read that passage. But it does change the way I think about God. The power of God. The presence of God. Of God, the knowledge of God. These things are true for God's enemies as much as they are true for God's people. And as much comfort as the faithful derive from the presence of God and the power of God and the knowledge of God, surely this is horror for those who have made themselves his enemies. 
If you are among his people, the sovereignty of God over all is a source of great comfort. If you are counted as his enemy, the sovereignty of God over all is absolutely terrifying. That's the meaning of our passage today. And it's important that you keep that idea at the forefront of your mind because the details of this passage can be distracting. We're about to wade into the deep end, guys. This passage is hard, not like emotionally difficult, not like linguistically complex. That's not what I mean. Uh, This passage has witches in it and spirits or ghosts or necromancers and a lot of stuff that I don't understand. (laughs) In fact, this passage is full of stuff that most people don't fully understand. There are long articles speculating about the details of this passage because it's just that strange. So before we get into those details, I want you to know that we do this sort of thing on purpose. The whole Bible is worth studying. Every word and every sentence and every paragraph Every time I preach, part of my preparation is to try and listen to what other pastors have taught about the same passage. I like to understand where my favorite preachers have landed and how they've applied the passage to their local church. So just about every time I preach through a text, I look up that text in a handful of sermon audio databases online. Here's the thing. Very few pastors preach through Samuel. It became apparent almost as soon as we started this series. I looked up topical or expositional sermons in Samuel on popular sermon archives. And and nobody that I really was familiar with had done it. I reached out actually to Brett and he looked too. And we were both kind of astonished because not a whole lot of people preach through Samuel. After a bit of exploring, we could find a few series that kind of sort of very quickly, broadly preached through David's story topically, like leadership lessons in the life of David or something like that. But almost nothing at all was available and and certainly nothing that, that we found profoundly helpful. And that isn't just true about Samuel. Pastors sometimes hesitate to preach through the Old Testament. And look, that's a big problem. We're not allowed to ignore two-thirds of the words of God. I want you to know that your elders are passionate about working through the entirety of the scriptures. I want you to know that we believe that even the weird passages are inspired by God, profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness, that the people of God, that's you and me, may be complete and equipped For every good work. Amen? That's why we're here this morning talking about witches and ghosts. Because this passage is hard, but it's good. So this is a verbal commitment to you from us to preach through every book of the Bible. Because every book of the Bible is inspired by God. And just so you know, Brett's volunteered for the Song of Solomon. It's official. 
So I want, I want to uh, start in 1 Samuel 28, verse 1. Read with me. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in this army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the city. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. So we're setting the scene here. David fled from Saul several years ago. And he's been dwelling with the Philistines for 16 months as the personal mercenary force of Achish, the king of Gath. Throughout that time, David and his men have been secretly raiding Canaanite villages. Now, he's reporting to Achish that they're raiding Israelite villages, however. So this pagan king believes that David is just a gift from above. The enemy of his greatest enemy, David has, by all appearances, become Achish's mightiest ally. So, perhaps because Achish believes Israel is weakened by the frequent raids of David, the Philistine army gathers to finally, ultimately defeat this Israelite nuisance. And the passage begins with Achish voicing his expectation that David and his men join the Philistine army in this effort functionally demanding that David turn against and destroy his own people. Now, David's response, I think, demonstrates his cunning. He says, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And we aren't given an explanation of what he means, but we can be certain, nearly, that he doesn't mean, sound great, let's go kill some Israelites. In fact... We may be led to believe here that David speaks as if he's in support of Achish, but is actually planning to turn against Achish on the battlefield. In either case, Achish senses no deception. In fact, he never once suspected David, which is odd considering how many nearby smoking piles of rubble must have coincided with David's reports of raids against Israel. But Achish responds by proclaiming David to be his personal forever bodyguard, which is an expression of the highest trust. We're also reminded immediately afterwards that Samuel, the great prophet of God, has died and is buried. All this stuff works together to tell us that the great hero of Israel, David, has by all appearances turned against Israel and allied himself with Israel's mightiest, mightiest enemy. And if that weren't bad enough, the great prophet of Israel is six feet under. Things are bad for Saul. His enemies lead a mighty army on the distant horizon, and all hope of God's intervention has been buried with Samuel. So keep reading. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. 
And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Saul here is desperate for counsel. And as he searches for the wisdom of a God who is turned away, all the irony of his rebellion comes to a head. He seeks the Lord by the priests, though few remain because of his great slaughter at Nob. He seeks the Lord by the prophets, though most have fled with David after Samuel declares that God has given him the kingdom. He seeks the Lord by dreams, but the God whom Saul has rejected is yet silent. So Saul is desperate indeed. And so he sends men to the forest moon of Endor in a galaxy far, far away. All right, so seriously, that's the only Star Wars joke. But if you didn't know it was coming, then you don't know me very well. All kidding aside, this is the height of Saul's desperation. We've just been told that at some point Saul cast out all of the pagan mediums and necromancers from the territory of Israel, rightfully so, because this wicked practice of speaking with the dead was forbidden in Israel. Listen to this from Leviticus 20. If a person turns to mediums and to necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. That's the promise of God. And those are heavy words. If you turn to mediums and necromancers, I will set my face against you and you will be cut off from among your people. That's the warning. And Saul knew the warning because he himself had enforced this law among the people of Israel. But here he's terrified and he's helpless. He's rejected by God and hopeless without him. So when he feels as if his sanctioned methods of seeking revelation are exhausted, he turns to the wicked and he seeks those who speak with the dead. So this is where the passage begins to get weird. Let's start asking questions. First, what is a medium? And what is a necromancer? So the first thing you should know is that the scriptures don't have an awful lot to say about how they do what they do, which is probably the thing that I find most fascinating. And I don't have a whole lot of answers for you. But the scriptures make clear that mediums and necromancers speak to the dead and they speak on behalf of the dead by engaging in some sort of wicked, pagan, demonic practices, these are men and women who have developed the ability to reach beyond the grave, to summon the spirits of dead people and to speak with them directly. And the idea behind this practice is that dead people have something profound to say, some sort of revelation to give to the living Consulting a medium or necromancer was condemned in the law, not notably because they're frauds, though surely there were some, 
No, the scriptures forbid necromancy because God is the source of all wisdom and revelation. Not the dead, not spirits, not demons, not idols. Listen to this from Isaiah. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So here Isaiah asked two questions, and those two questions should, I think, frame for us the desperate foolishness of necromancy. Should not a people inquire of their God? Yes, because God is the source of all knowledge. To turn to another, any other, is foolishness. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So Isaiah's point is that beyond the idiocy of turning away from the source of all wisdom and revelation, consulting the dead on behalf of the living is backwards. It's silly. It's ironic. They're dead. Their time is spent. They're in the grave. Don't turn to the dead on behalf of the living. They have nothing especially relevant to say because they're dead. The murmurs of the dead are poor substitutes for, this, for the wisdom and revelation of God. And we are not allowed to seek substitutes. So that's the problem with necromancy. We're not allowed to seek substitutes. The people of God are permitted to draw from one spring of wisdom, from one fount of revelation. And that is God. The Lord God of Israel has more than enough wisdom, more than enough knowledge, more than enough counsel to prepare his people to overcome any obstacle. You don't turn to another, especially not the dead. But in his desperation, Saul seals his fate as a foolish enemy of God. Keep reading. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and his two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he was cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Without his royal robes, the average Canaanite wouldn't have known Saul. So Saul strips himself of his royal robes, which is, by the way, meaningful on a number of levels. Nothing, not a word, is ever wasted in the scriptures. Saul is stripped of his royal robes, the royal robes of the kingdom of Israel, just before totally abandoning the covenant. Because there is no kingdom of Israel when the people of Israel abandon the the covenant. And there is no throne outside of the blessing of God. So you should soak in the irony of these words. So Saul dresses like a common man and then travels literally six miles behind enemy lines. A real risk and a final, ask, final act of desperation. When they arrive, Saul commissions the medium. 
And she's ironically more concerned about the covenant restrictions than he is. But listen to his words. Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. But look, listen to the words of God from Leviticus. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Saul here is flirting with the wrath of God by swearing by God's name against God's name. Reaching out to the dead is wicked. It's demonic. It's Penalty is swift death. That's the mandate of God himself. But Saul, in his desperation, makes a mockery of the covenant of God's people by swearing against the very character of God. Keep reading. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. And the woman saw Samuel, and she cried out with a loud voice, And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that this was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Okay, so we're in a very strange situation here, which raises a handful of questions. As soon as Samuel's spirit arrives, the woman cries out. Why? Why did she cry out? And how did she know that it was Saul? There's a couple answers. I'm going to give you uh, my two favorite, and you can choose. Uh, I think the best answer is that this medium was accustomed to speaking with spirits. When Samuel's spirit arrived, either he himself spoke Saul's name, or the medium was by some means of enlightenment uh, enlightened to Saul's identity. In other words, somehow Samuel's presence taught the medium that it was, not, that it was Saul, not just some guy, who had sought her services. And that's why she cries out, because she's terrified that Saul, who has commissioned the death of every medium and necromancer in the land, is now sitting in her living room, watching her do the work of a medium. So that's one option. The other option is that this medium is either a fraud or has never before actually spoken with the dead, or expects something radically different than what happens. Because when Samuel's spirit arrives, the medium is shocked to see Samuel at all. So when Samuel arrives, she cries out because his presence is unexpected, and then she seems to put two and two together and realizes that if this is Samuel, the great prophet of God, then this must be Saul, the king of Israel. In either case, Samuel's spirit stands before them both. But only the medium is able to see him. Saul is impatient to discover whether this is truly Samuel, so he asks questions. 
Now, don't get too tripped up on the medium's answer because her language may seem theologically rich, but the word she uses, God, um, is sort of the pagan variation, means spirit or God in the little g sense of the word. She says a spirit, basically, has risen out of the ground, and he looks like an old man wearing a sleeveless robe. And this is the type of robe that Samuel is perpetually described as wearing. And that seems to be enough to convince Saul that he's standing before the spirit of Samuel. And at this point, he engages in a ridiculous display of homage, honoring the spirit of Samuel far more after he's dead than he ever did when he was alive. Perhaps we're given a peek into Saul's dramatic misunderstanding of the way the world works. Because his honor of the dead spirit of Samuel exceeds his honor of even God himself on most occasions. Keep reading. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Samuel's first question is fascinating and loaded with implications. Why have you disturbed me? Implies, I think, some sort of rest. We're not given any more details than this question, but the text indicates at least that Samuel didn't appreciate ascending back into the realm of the living on this brief occasion. Saul's answer is expected. He relays the events that precede this conversation briefly and acknowledges the root cause of this circumstance that God has turned away from him. Apparently, he he expects Samuel to somehow act independently of God and somehow to thwart God's purposes because he finishes by saying, Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. Samuel's response is exactly what you'd expect for him to say because it's exactly what he says when he's living. Samuel says, If the Lord has turned from you to become your enemy, why do you ask me? He reminds Saul that he has made himself an enemy of God by breaking the covenant and ignoring God's commands. And all of that is a pretty standard response that you may have expected. But his last words go further than ever before. He says three things. He says, the Lord will give you into the hand of the Philistines. He says, the Lord will give Israel together with you into the hand of the Philistines. And then he says, tomorrow you will be with me in death, both you and your sons. Here, all of the curses of the broken covenant land heavily upon this rebel king. He knows now, with dreadful anticipation, that there is no hope as an enemy of God. There is no hope 
as an enemy of God. He, he knows that there is no escaping God's reign. There is no escaping God's reign. He knows that he cannot flee God's will either to the grave or to the pagan nations or to the dead spirits of prophets. God's power and God's knowledge and God's will loom over God's enemies as a specter. And Saul despairs without hope. Keep reading. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the, women came to, and the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life into my hand, and I have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went their way. As soon as Saul hears Samuel's words, he faints. Literally. It'd be funny if it weren't so tragic. Saul faints from fear and falls to the ground. Then we learn that he hasn't eaten anything for a full day prior to the battle. Apparently he learned nothing from the foolish vow that became a curse on Israel and nearly claimed the life of his firstborn son. He's been fasting. And still Saul, in his despair, refuses to eat until his men and this pagan sorceress plead with him to take a last meal. Thus we learn that these are the final moments of the first king of Israel. This is a king like the nations. And how appropriate is it that the king like the nations feasts on a fattened calf in the home of a pagan sorceress while breaking the covenant of God? Truly Saul was exactly what the people of Israel asked for. They ate and they drank and they rose and went their way, hopeless before the sovereign wrath of God. There are, I think, at least two ways that this story ought to change the way you live. First, each one of us, like Saul, has broken the covenant. Each one of us, like Saul, has made ourselves an enemy of God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. Imagine the terror of those words for Saul. He had made himself an enemy of God. An enemy. God is an enemy of unimaginable power, of unimaginable influence, of unimaginable presence. Where could he flee from God's spirit? Where could he flee from God's presence? If he reaches to the depths of Sheol, there is God. If he escapes into the darkness, deep into the pagan nations, even the darkness is not dark to God. 
The enemies of God cannot escape his might, cannot escape his will, and cannot escape his wrath. You too have made yourself an enemy of God. He who is your only hope is made your enemy because of sin. And his sentence of death is absolute. You cannot escape his grasp. You cannot elude his judgment. God's might, his power, his knowledge, his will are inescapable. So if you cannot flee from the sovereign arms of God, run into them. Sinner, do not remain an enemy of God. You cannot escape his judgment. And he has decreed that the penalty of sin is death. Your death or the death of Jesus. If you are not in Christ, vast armies loom on the horizon. If you are not in Christ, the might of your greatest enemy should overwhelm you with terror. There is no escaping the sovereign arms of God. Reconcile yourself to the great king over every realm by the mighty blood of Jesus. Christ took the death you earned and offers you the glory he earned. Christ is your only hope. Christ's work can transform the great specter of judgment to an overwhelming hope of glory. Amen. Second, trust in the king who never fails his people. Saul was a king like the nations. Every nation is led by someone like Saul. Every government, every business, every organization, every club. This world is full of Saul's demanding your allegiance, requiring your obedience, and promising you peace and prosperity. And your every action and word is an expression of trust and allegiance to this king or that. The books you read, the hours of overtime you invest, the people you dine with, these decisions are each an expression of trust and allegiance in a king. Saul failed the people of God. Saul led the people to their grave, to a devastating defeat before a mighty army. And all the kings of this earth are like Saul. Each of them will fail to protect their people. Each of them will lead you to ruin. Set your hope in a king who isn't like Saul. Set your hope in the king who fulfills the covenant. Set your hope in the king who purchases his people and reconciles his people and restores his people and edifies his people and prepares his people and makes a place for his people and returns for his people. All of your actions, all of your words, and all of your time should be spent as an expression of trust in his government, in his return, preparing his people. Amen. Let's look forward to that return at the table.
This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org. 